you've traveled, Todd. You know, you talk about your trip to Germany. And, Not and, as much as you. Sure, but but, <laughs> but 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 I say this to anybody here listening um, that that those things that we go to to do, we know a lot of people say they've got on uh, a place on their bucket list, right? You know, so you want to see the. Tour de Eiffel, you know, the Eiffel Tower, or you want to go to the Louvre, or you want to see London Bridge, whatever, you know, go to the museum, you would like this architecture, this, but it, but it, years later, when you think back of your trips, you might not really remember that building or that piece of no, art on the wall, no. but you'll remember that little lady that served you the espresso on the mm-hmm. corner. Yep. And yep. it's the people. Absolutely. It's the people that you remember. And and you're, you're right, curiosity and connection, Todd, is the... Is the is the thing that drives me, and, and it also comes back to what I said earlier about being open, because a lot of people have a bit of a fear, um, mm-hmm. and 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 to be afraid to whatever you're wherever you draw on your fear, and I, I think it it takes a little bit of um, practice to be more open. I'm Todd Harrington, and you're listening to the Gray Matters Podcast. Along with my co-host, Tony Hoyland, each episode explores a special guest's lifelong passion. There'll be a bit of nostalgia, but mostly it's our guest's personal story of how they discovered their passion and how it evolved over the years. Welcome to the Gray Matters Podcast. Our guest today is Alan Carl, a photographer and author, global food explorer, adventure, and motivational speaker. He's best known for traveling around the world on his motorcycle and then writing a book about it called Forks, a quest for culture, cuisine, and connections. Three years, five continents, and one motorcycle. 62,000 miles, 75 countries, 40 new recipes. People have called it a man truly on a journey of self-discovery. So without further ado... Mr. Alan Carl. Alan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing excellent. How are you doing, Todd? Uh, before we get started, you'll be hearing a cool voice chiming in from time to time. My co-host and talented musician and professional voiceover, Tony Hoyland. Tony, say hello to Alan. Hey, guys. How are you, Alan? Doing well, Tony. Well, Alan, I got to tell you, I mean, between Forks and your journey and your life, I mean, you're, you know, I think everyone wants to, uh, you know, live your life to some extent. Uh, the bucket list just expanded with after watching all your videos for me. But uh, <laughs> take us back a little bit, you know, that decision when you wanted to make that change and, you know, what inspired you other than your, your wish to travel. Start with it a little bit from the beginning. Sure. I, I, you know, uh, traveling, I think at least a global travel is, uh, didn't really kick into me as a, as an interest until after I'd, uh, graduated college. Uh, first, first long trip was during a hiatus between jobs back in, uh, oh God, I can't remember, but, but it probably was about three or four years after I'd graduated. Uh, I went to Indonesia for two months uh, with a cohort and traveled through about 13 of the different um, islands of that archipelago. That really kind of bit me um, originally. And um, uh, travel was going to be something that just had to be, I had to figure a way to make that part of my life. And in fact, when I got married, um, I took a month off and returned to Indonesia uh, because it was something I uh, was so inspired by. Uh, the different and unique culture, the languages, the uh, 
um, the different faces, particularly in Indonesia, which which really is a very little diverse um, ecosystem of its own. That uh, I said, you know, to my uh, new wife at the time, I says, I, I need to share this with you. I need oh. this. This can't be just my thing. You need to see this. So so that was it. But then fast forward to years later, I started a company, you know, and and grew it and and was trying to you know hit the uh, proverbial home run and uh mm. and 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 take it home but uh, things didn't work out that way um obviously the marriage kind of uh, fizzled and then the um the uh the business didn't go exactly as i thought it was going to and uh in the um shadow of 9-11 at the time i um i uh decided because i happened to be in the hard rock uh, hotel in Las Vegas with a big corporate meeting with the new bigger company that that I, that I'd grown into. Uh, you know, I woke up that morning um, with the planes crashing into the towers, the Pentagon slammed. I I um, I realized I don't know if I need to be doing this, particularly because the private equity firm that had invested in the company uh, at the time, I, I really didn't seem to have. You know, it's all about connection, right? We, we, right. we could talk about this. I mean, yep. you know, you sit down with 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 a friend or even a business associate, usually over a meal, and maybe a good glass or bottle or two of wine. And I, these guys that were now kind of my new bosses in a way, mm. all of a sudden, I said, "Yeah, I don't know if I'd really want to sit down with these guys." <laughs> <laughs> well, so that I says quit. A lot. Yeah, true. And um, and they tried to sue me. Um, it did sue me, but you know, when we, we came to an agreement, and then <laughs> I drive it. What is? Yeah, <laughs> good times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't a. It was a settlement, not a. You know, it never went to the, uh, you know, the, the the judge or the uh, the mediator. But anyway, in the end, I think um, I decided to do what I always done, and that's start companies, be entrepreneurial, and I did. I started another company, and. And in the midst of that, I go, why am I doing the same thing? You know, we're not getting any younger. Travel as as going way back, you know, to that first trip to Indonesia. I said, you know what? I like motorcycles. And I had just written, uh, read a book. You guys may know Neil Peart. He was the drummer for a rock and roll band called Rush. Um, uh, Rush, but not, yeah. Yeah. So Neil Neil passed away a couple last year. It was a couple years ago. Um too, too of uh, cancer, too young. But um, he also was a motorcyclist, and he had written a book called Ghost Rider. And, and check this out. You talk about going through having problems that, uh, that can affect life decisions. He, in the, in the period of one year, he lost his daughter, his 17-year-old daughter, who had just going to... Co- was, was literally... They, they had a dinner one night, and she left in a bit of a rainstorm... Uh, to go to her first year in college, she crashes her car and kills herself. Jesus. And then later that year, you know, while cloaked in that grief, his wife dies of cancer. So even though he's got everything, he's got, you know, all the money in the world, he's got a great motorcycle, he's uh, got fame, it really, you know, he, he lost everything. In fact, he, didn't, he was kind of more of an introvert anyway. So long story short, short the, the Ghost Rider book tells the story about how he thought the only way he could tame his his withered and and uh, grieving soul was to hop on the motorcycle 
much like he would use a car as a young father when his daughter was colic and couldn't would never go to sleep they'd put her in the car seat and just drive around until she fell asleep he put himself on a motorcycle to soothe that soul and and he rode from all the way up to alaska down to mexico central america all around and and documented it in this book called ghost rider and i just read it and i'm like that's what i'm gonna do and and originally it was just merely gonna ride down to panama you know, the bottom of Central America. And then I thought to myself, well, why stop there? Why don't I just go to the bottom of South America? And then Jesus. I thought, no, why? What the hell? I stop nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. It's a long answer, but, well, you know. I mean, it's, cool. you, you said something about how important it is to be curious. And, I mean, it's clearly everything, the fact that you would go to Panama, like, you know, I'll just keep going, just that kind of free-spirited, whimsical way of going after your dreams and following the fact that this guy, if he had any idea, you know, the impact, the ghostwriter, and you took that. A lot of us read books and a lot of people read books and they're inspired, but they don't take action. You actually took action because your curiosity takes over. Is that kind of a safe way to put it potentially? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of the things, you know, when I do book signings, one of the things I always sign in my book is stay curious yeah. uh, because, because curiosity you know, it's, 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 it's asking questions and it's wondering and, and asking why. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. The main part that really struck me, other than you've seen every place that I want to go to, is the alone on a motorcycle. Why would you go alone? <laughs> I mean, I mean, wouldn't you say, hey, just put it out there just in case. Hey, Todd, hey, Tony, you know, want to go? I mean, like just to see or with that, with that you feel like a lot of travels, then you kind of get latched on each other you don't explore as much and get as curious i mean why did you decide to go alone on such a trip i I guess there's two reasons uh the first is simply that when you are alone you are more likely to connect with others Mm -hmm. to search out and and you know and, and and indulge a bit of that curiosity and you're also by not by by not being with somebody, you tend to will just constantly communicate with each other, mm. and and you're also not as approachable. So when you're also alone, people don't feel like they're intruding. If you're you know if you're with your um, significant other or with a buddy, a bro, you know you you know people might not come up to you. You know you're kind of in your own little universe when you travel um, as a duo, trio, whatever it would be, um, let alone an organized kind of tour. But when you're alone, you tend to be open, more open. And I think openness is what's part of that being curious, is open to new ideas, open to new people, new cultures. And the second thing I say is that even though I did travel alone, I truly never was alone. Because mm-hmm. if I was ever hungry, lost, or curious, i just turn around and somebody is always there. Wow, yeah. I mean, it is something to be said about my travels alone. They, people would see you literally sitting by yourself in Europe and say, hey, they wave me over. I've done that many, like, without even my pursuing them, come on over, have a beer with me or whatever in Germany. So there is that kind of sense that people want to even include you when you're alone versus if you were two or three other people, perhaps. But Yeah, um, yeah. So you, you, you get on, you said there's a lot of lessons you learned and what's along the way, and, and you obviously cooking is your passion. Food was a part of this trip. Is this, is this something you've been doing your life as well, cooking? I know you love bikes and photography, but talk a little bit about each your journey and the recipes that you discovered. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. The, um, 
the cooking thing is is something came later in life. You know, I I like you, Todd. You know, we grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and um, and and food with my family was never an adventure. No, uh, not it was, at all. It was pretty <laughs> vanilla, you know. <laughs> Eggos for breakfast, you know, pop in the toaster, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. There wasn't there wasn't that, and and I was a pain. I mean, for for my my mother and father, I'm sure you know. Um, and, and kids today are, are no different that, uh, you know, some, some parents actually cater to their idiosyncrasies, which I think is actually a problem and probably was a problem for me. Yep. Like if I didn't like something, my mom would, would feed me something else, even though my brother. Wow. Well, should have come to your house. My mom would say, eat it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. If you, if you don't eat your meat, you don't get any pudding or how does it go yeah, anyway? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. It'd be, it's that Pink Floyd reference there. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, this is a, you know, wh- what is it about women? So I'll never forget. <laughs> I, so there was this this hot amber redhead girl in Venice Beach, California, that I uh, I wanted to date, and um, and and that, and I I remember she finally agreeing to go out with me, and she said, uh, "Let's go out and have some Thai food." And you know, this is back. Time and I'm like Thai food. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, <laughs> Can we just but get a you know slice of pizza? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, let's let's yeah, exactly. So, but you know, I bit my tongue and I said, "Oh, okay, Thai food. Let's go out." So I I almost credit um, this this girl at the time. You know, I was 21 or 22 at the time, and said uh, to to kind of opening my eyes because the Thai food was really good. And and I realized that coming back to that openness, how close my mind was to food. So, so you know, fast forward along to it to another time, and I, um, uh, you know, five five years later or something, um, I'm living now in Orange County. I'm not up in L.A. near Venice anymore, and I'm ready to have a another date with a woman. And um, and and a friend of mine, a girl lady I knew, said, you know, you should you should cook a dinner. And I'm like, what am I going to cook? I don't, you know, I can throw a steak on the grill or something. And and she gave me this recipe and told me exactly how to do it to make a, a, a chicken dish that uh, is, uh, what the hell is it? Chicken Dijon. So it's kind of got this mm. yogurt Dijon. Yeah. And I cooked this thing and, you know, needless to say, it was a very successful date. And um, the dinner was actually <laughs> delicious. Oh, the dinner and, was successful too. Okay, good. Yeah, the <laughs> dinner was successful. And, 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 and it was literally that, those two things that I, I credit for coming back to saying, I got my uh, curiosity to, to cook and I went down different things. I got into stir frying, you know, creating Asian inspired dishes. But to be honest, Todd, uh, Tony, the, um, on the trip, I didn't, you know, I could, I counted how many meals I, I forget now. I think I put it in the book, but I had tons of meals and I tended to certainly eat the, uh, or choose to eat the, uh, local Look, dishes. Yeah. But I, I never had this idea that I was going to create a book that would have recipes from this. The idea came much later after I'd already returned. But there was one recipe, one dish that I had several times in, in uh, northern Brazil, in Bahia, in Salvador, in the, um, in the north uh, eastern part of Brazil, which has a huge influence of uh, African uh, culture. And there is a dish called moqueca. Basically, it's like a fisherman's stew. It's just this, um, whatever fish you caught that day with, with er, fresh herbs, onion, and this thing called, uh, dende. It's a, 
it's it's a palm oil, but it's not the palm oil you, you read about that 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 they cook everything in that's not good for you. It's red palm oil. And I just loved it. And I, I remember that dish so much. And, and uh, three years later, when I was back in Southern California, I invited my friends Bonnie and Doug. And with my girlfriend, Angie, we decided to, uh, I said, I'm going to cook you this dish I had. And I was in the midst of writing the book and trying to figure out, you know, it was more of a memoir at that time. And I cooked that dish up and as well as a salad that I had, I remember from having in, in Syria. Um, and at the end of the meal and after a couple of bottles of wine, as it is, I, uh, Doug and Bonnie turned to me and said, you should put this recipe or these recipes in your book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought, wow, that's a great idea. So the whole project kind of turned on its head at that point. Well, first of all, you don't hear salad from Syria often in a conversation, but um, <laughs> uh, I don't even know what Syrian food, like I don't know anything about it, but going turning to the book, I mean, that's, didn't you try to, I mean, most of these publishers say, well, you want to be a travel book or what do you want to do? You want a cookbook? And you stood your ground, right? And you said, I don't want it to be one or the other. I want it to be all inclusive of your photography, your travels and food. Is that correct? Yeah, they they the initial publisher who had an interest in my book um, said, "Alan, that's fine, you know, but uh, you 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 know, we the putting the pictures, the photographs, is expensive. Um, you know, the recipes are fine. You could throw it in at the end of a chapter, uh, one or two, but let's stick to the memoir, the travel log, and um, and I thought to myself, no, this is." it kind of comes back to that time when I was with my new wife, taking her to Indonesia. And I says, you've got to see this. You've got to feel like how I felt on my mm -hmm. first trip there. And the book needed to kind of, instead of being about me and my, you know, crazy wandering around the world trip, it really needed to be about the people I met, the food I had and, and the places that I saw. And I, it would be my way to share this with the world, uh, yeah, experience maybe. this the, the, it, without, getting on the back of the bike, you know, the best I could do it. So it's a coffee table book and, um, you know, hardcover with about 700 photographs in it. And as you noted, you know, there's about 40 recipes in there. And, um, and yeah, it's and cool. also the recipes, you know, to, to exclude those, they represented those experiences in those countries too much to leave them out because the, uh, the food itself was part of those experiences, part of the journey. Yeah. Alan, I'm curious. As we <laughs> Ahead, how did how did the um, how did you get the producer on board? I mean the the publisher on board ultimately. So ultimately, uh, the publisher became me. Um, <laughs> <because> <laughs> and you argued with Good yourself you, over and over man. again, and said like you know, yeah, constantly. So it you know what I did is my background is in marketing and branding, and you mm -hmm. know I I ran an agency for years, so I had the skills, the resources, and knew how to manage a project and put something together, you know, like that. And, um, but what I did is, you know, a lot of times when you come up with a new product idea or if you got or a new, any idea, this, this would be obviously a product. I, you know, you want to have a little bit of proof of concept. So mm -hmm. you need, you know, whether you use focus groups or testing or however you want to do that. So I decided at the suggestion of a, of a good friend of mine is to put this, uh, to, to crowdfund this to run a Kickstarter campaign. Mm -hmm. wow. And that's ex exactly what I did is I ran a Kickstarter campaign. And if you know a little bit about Kickstarter, you know, there's Indiegogo, there's GoFundMe, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, now there's Patreon, there's a lot of different ways to 
to, to kind of fund creative projects or to run campaigns to kind of proof of concept, I, um, you set a goal. And with Kickstarter, it, it's a, it's a, you, you hit the goal or you don't in terms of uh, your funding goal, whereas Indiegogo, if you set a goal for you need to make 20 grand and if you hit five grand, well, you still get the money from your backers. And, and to me, that's a bit antithesis to what the whole idea is. If you, mm-hmm. if you know what it's going to cost you, to do a creative project and you only get 25% of it, well, why, you know, how were you <laughs> going to get, you're going to get the other. So, so I, I'm not, I, I, Indiegogo was not an option for me. I says, I, I you're either going to go for it or not. So I set a goal of $22,000, I think, cause that's what it was going to be to print my first run of these books. And I ran this campaign and you know, it, it was 30 days and I raised um, um, almost double that 42,000 wow. bucks. That's awesome. And that that extra funding, uh, that extra cash was able to, I could pump pump into a PR campaign, hire a, a publicist and, and really go out with this book. So, yeah, I manage it. You know, I, I, I knew a photographer, a food photographer who shot all the recipes. So they're really, you know, I'm not the photographer of the food in the book. Uh, I mean, the what I call the hero shots for the recipes. There's yeah. other little mm. food, but yeah, that that's, that's, that's cool. I did. So no publisher ever, uh, did that. Um, and it's now in his fourth printing. Wow. Nice. That's awesome. One thing about photography you mentioned, Alan, is like, you're a photographer, but there's a lot of footage I've seen on you that it's, who did you have with you? I mean, how'd you do this? Are these, are these some of the sponsor shots, but when you're traveling, you didn't, you didn't take all these pictures because you're in some of them. So who, who was there? Did you have the locals just say here, point and click? Or did you have someone every now and then show up to visit? Or was it just literally handing your camera to somebody? Yeah, um, every once in a while, you know, I, I, I ran into some people that I'd travel with for uh, um, you know, a few days or a week or two at the time. Um, uh, the other times, yeah, you hand the camera to a stranger and... Um, and you know, I, I'm you know some some friends of mine because even way back before I did my um, motorcycle trip, I you know traveled through Europe and Italy, France, and the usual uh, places. And um, back when uh, the little digital cameras were just coming out, you know, it's still very low resolution, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, so a couple of friends of mine said, "Alan, you invented the selfie because I used to, <laughs> I used to use these digital cameras and hold the, the the cameras out, or or you know, and 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 take shots, or stick it on the end of a a, a tripod and hold it out, um, and uh, put the self timer on. Remember self timers? Oh yeah. you know, Oh uh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 it's funny. So the cover of the book you can see is a is a photo of me leaning up against right. a sign yeah. with the, next to the motorcycle. Well, that is a total self timer selfie. I wondered um, about that shot. Oh my god, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things about what you know. You've obviously learned a lot along the way and about yourself and the, the you know valued lessons, et cetera. But there's a couple in the stories that I've re- read about you that seem just impossible. And I want to hear a little bit about being held at gunpoint in Colombia by the guerrillas. Uh, tell me about that. That I mean, what did you? You must have changed after that. Tell me. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is one of those stories that I, I tell during one of my keynote speeches, you know, during my, some of my main inspirational things. But it, it, it's crazy. I, I was in Colombia. I never originally was going to go to Colombia because everyone said, don't go there. It's a dangerous place. And when I, when I got... And you found out. <laughs> yeah. When I got to the bottom of Panama, I thought to myself, um, you know, I didn't pack up 
my motorcycle and sell nearly everything I owned just to take the safe route around the world. Mm. So instead of putting my bike on a plane and flying over the country of Colombia and going to Ecuador, I said, I'm going to Colombia. And I did. And it was, I was about um, four hours from the border. And there's a lot of police checkpoints all throughout Colombia if you're traveling by road. And at these police checkpoints, they just check you out. They want to see your ID. But at this one, they said, uh, be careful. They warned me that I'm about to travel through the most dangerous part of Colombia. And they said, for the next two or three hours, until you get to this town called Pasto, I think that was it, yeah, don't stop. Stay on the bike. Keep going. So I ride around, and after like about an hour, I'm, there's not one person I see, except maybe I see a, a guy carrying firewood, you know, on the on his back. You know, these people, that's there's no electricity here, so to, to cook and keep themselves warm, they just, you know, go out and harvest wood. So you see these people kind of hunched over, carrying wood all over. It's And, and through all those countries in South America and even Africa. And anyway, I, I thought, well, I haven't seen anybody. And as I go around these series of turns, I've been following this... Uh, canyon and then there's this waterfall it's about 300 feet dropping into the river that's winding way down below you know and i thought ah i'm gonna just pull over here and um and take a picture you know i'm a photographer i gotta get a picture this waterfall is too awesome i mean this makes yosemite look like a you know candy land or something and um (laughs) So I stop, and before I know it, um, there's two guys in, 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 in camo fatigues, you know, in jungle fatigues, uh, each carrying an automatic weapon. And, um, um, Jesus. And I thought to myself, hmm, now these guys didn't speak any English, and uh, I didn't, and I, I had a little bit of Spanish. I'd been through um, Mexico, obviously, and Central America, so I... I just, you know, I don't know what, the, what their motivation or anything is. So I just say, La Cascada, que increíble, you know, the waterfall, it's incredible. And, mm-hmm. um, and they say, oh, you like waterfalls, do you? And I said, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm trembling. My heart is beating out of my <laughs> chest at this point. You can't imagine. He says, hey, there's another one in the jungle about a kilometer away. Follow us. And I think to myself, Todd, is that an order? or an offer. And, uh, I think it's an order. (laughs) So I, you know, I, I, I look at my motorcycle and I look at these two guys, you know, and I look at into the jungle there and, you know, I, I have to take a gut check. So you got my motorcycle. It's my kind of ticket to escape my getaway vehicle, if you will. And if I run, though, and get on it, will they shoot? And then I got two guys carrying guns, you know, ordering me into the mm-hmm. jungle, you know. So what do I, yeah, what do you do? Yeah. And I looked into each of their eyes and I searched for something, a sign, something to tell me that I was going to be right. And for just a brief moment, I felt like a bit of calm came over me. I don't know why, maybe something in their eyes. So I walked into the jungle with them. And I have to tell you that, that uh, going into the jungle now, I've got my camera because, you know, I'm taking pictures of the vertical and it's a it's an expensive camera. It's a DSLR. And as we're hiking along and got the one guy with one gun ahead of me and the other guy with his behind and I lift my camera and I take a picture. A little sound of the shutter goes, you know, it's loud. The guy in front of me turns around, points his gun at me. The other guy comes up behind and butts me with the butt, you know, the, the butt of his gun. Jesus. 
And I, I think to myself, great, Alan, you know, that's a bit crazy. Because in some places, mm-hmm. taking a picture even of a government building in, in these countries, they may throw you in jail, you know, but let alone taking mm-hmm. a picture of a guy with a gun. So I lift up the camera and I show it to him. I show him the picture. It's just a picture of his back, you know, and the gun. Not very good. I show him how to click the shutter. And he, he grabs the camera from me and um, flicks the shutter a couple times. And then he they say, keep walking. So now this guy's got my camera. The other guy's behind me. And, and we keep walking. And believe it or not, for, I don't know, it seemed like an hour. I don't know how long it was. We come to a clearing in the jungle. And there's this pool of water. And above it is a, a waterfall, three tiers kind of tumbling into this pool. And... Um, the guy with the camera um, starts taking pictures of me, of the waterfall, of the other Jesus. guy. Um, and, and, a little happy family on a trip. Yeah. yeah. And then he, 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 he takes the camera and gives it to the other guy with the gun and asks him to take the picture of the two of us with the waterfall in the background. Oh, man. But here's the crazy part. You think, you don't know, how crazy is Alan and how curious you go back to curiosity so this guy's taking a picture of me and him and i turn to him and i look down at the gun and i say you know in in my you know trouble to spanish i said that's a pretty cool gun can i check it out (laughs) jesus so why not go for it at this point right so so to my surprise he takes the, the gun off and puts it into the palm of my hands and i you know I'm not, I'm not a gun guy, you know. I don't have, I've never owned a gun. You know, I think maybe I got uh, uh, my, uh, sh- you know, shooting merit badge in Boy Scouts, but that would be about it, right? So this gun's in my hand, and I put my finger on the trigger, and he says, hey, whoa, 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 careful. It's loaded. There's no safety. So I'm uh, like, uh, wow. great. So, so it's at that moment, guys, that I, I look down at this gun in my hand, and then I look over, at my camera in the other guy's hands and realized that it probably cost me more than these guys make in a year. And then I looked down at that gun and I realized that they could have in a second shot me and killed me and left me dying here in this jungle. Take your camera, sell it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but at that moment I, 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 I realized that, um, you know, here in this weird Colombian jungle with these two guys with guns, you know, that, uh, we can, can transcend that, that, that the, the powerful mm. gift that we have of human connection, of, of sharing a, a place like this, you know, this beautiful jungle, um, this beautiful waterfalls, wow. and also the, um, you know, that, that powerful gift of human connection. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, listening to you talk about amazing. your ability. We talk about you know, you're such a good-natured guy and you're, uh, everyone's the humanity in people and the ability to connect because... Most people I know would have crumbled in, a, in that moment. But, oh, hell uh, yes. You know, you just said, this is, this, guy, this is where he lives, this is what he does. I can still connect to him. That moment you said in the story where you looked in his eyes, you had a moment. And you really want to, it makes you think about all the, the evil that surrounds, you know, some of these areas and how you can. And you took it and your curiosity to a whole nother level, as you put it, to just really connect with a guy. And the fact that he gave you, put the rifle in your hands. insane. Unbelievable. Insane. Yeah. I would have been on that bike so fast, man. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, Tony's a member of the NRA, but he would have been fine. Right. <laughs> hey, Alan, I got some stupid questions for you, because no that's what I do. Um, no stupid questions. So what, like, did you know where you're going to spend the night on each, you know, throughout these 
journeys? I mean, was it were you just winging it? Airbnb the whole, the whole way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, pretty much winging it. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, in in certain cases, I'd know I'd be getting to a, a particular city or town, but certainly, and there's no idea uh-huh. that I would know what place. In fact, the the toughest question for me at the end of a long day of riding is, yes, where am I going to sleep? And when I would go into a place. Um, you know, and I didn't, I was not a big budget, you know, this is not, I'm going, not going to the uh, Marriott's, believe in, you know, or, or certainly not the Four Seasons. Or, Four Seasons know, in, in Columbia. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So, uh, yeah, I could tell you work for an ad agency now. <laughs> there you go. So, so what I, what Expense I would do, that. so the first question I go in and say, how much? And can I look at your parking? So not even look at the room. Mm-hmm. I want to know where am I going to keep the bike because to make sure that 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 when I woke up the next I morning stolen. I'd have yeah. the bike. Yeah. So right. parking was real important. And then of course, yeah, let's see, let's see the room. Yeah, but no winging it because you. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. You 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 don't. It's not like you when like I drove to Florida. We know exactly where we can stop. You're kind of like you're going to stop where you stop. So you can't have a real plan. And so that's pretty risky in some strange country to just say, well, I'll find a place to stay. And we're not talking about somewhere in Europe. We're talking about like Bolivia and Colombia. Yeah. That's a whole nother level. And, you know, on the, on the note of Bolivia, I, I got to get some of the cool stories in there <laughs> that I read about. But I mean, you know, uh, we've all gotten hurt, but to break your leg on the on the side of a road in Bolivia, you, know, you want to tell us a little bit about that? That's insane. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, before I went on this journey, everyone said, well, Alan, you know, have a nice life. I guess we'll never see again because you're either going to be yeah, killed, yeah. kidnapped, or you're going to come down with some crazy, you know, of course, saying this now, some virus or some disease. Right. But right. Um, no, they're in, they're in Bolivia. Um, I was headed to the Salar de Uyuni, and Salar means salt, uh, more or less, uh, like sal in uh, Latin. But uh, mm-hmm. it's the largest salt flat in the world. It's about um, 4,000 square miles, roughly the size of... Uh, of, of Delaware or the entire county of Los Angeles. Um, and it's connected between, you know, the only way to get there, I mean, I, there's a couple ways to get there, but but I was coming through Potosi. And Potosi, uh, San Luis de Potosi is a town. It's the highest um, city in the world. It sits at about 14,000 feet high in the Andes. So I was traveling from Potosi to Uyuni over a dirt road. It's about 200 maybe 300 miles. And it had been raining tough the last couple days. So a lot of the road had turned into mud and pools of, you know, uh, puddles of, of muddy water. But it had, it had dried out pretty good by the time I started. And, uh, but there's only one little, uh, you know, I don't even call it a town, more of a, um, uh, just a little bus stop, if you will, because a lot of people in the area will raise, you know, um, crops of different kinds of things uh, that you can grow high there, like like quinoa and uh, and also llamas. So you have a, llama, a lot of llama herders out there. But anyway, this little this little settlement that I uh, was coming into was the first time I'd seen any people in in a hundred miles or so. But because all the buses that travel between these two places, Uyuni and Potosi, you know, constantly stop and go there, the whole thing is rutted mud. And sure enough, um, I'm riding through and my rear wheel starts spinning and slips out from under me. I, I get thrown off the bike into the mud and my motorcycle, which is weighing about 400 pounds and I'm carrying about, 
200 pounds of my earthly belongings, lands down on top of me and crushes my leg and breaks it into three pieces. And uh, and, and if you talk about, you know, it's like in the middle of nowhere, this is (laughs) nowhere. So, but but I did manage to get, um, you know, eventually somebody to transport me back to Potosi. And I was able to, um, took three days, but I was able to leverage my uh, medevac insurance to get, to get me uh, taken out of there. But I will say this, because you you, I can't tell the story without saying this. So, you know, I called them the medevac company and they're like, wow, there, there, there is an airport in Potosi. In fact, it's, it's new. It's, it's not even been opened a year by the time when I'm here, except it's never been opened. Because in Potosi, there's two problems. People are too poor. They can't afford airline tickets. And second thing, at 14,000 feet high in the Andes, it's one of the most dangerous places to fly in and out of. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. so for three days, my, uh, the, the, the insurance company, the Medevac, Medjet Assist they are, and they're, t- they're, they're tough uh, trying to figure out how to get me out of there. They, they realized, because to, to, to send a vehicle there from the nearest big town where there's another airport, La Paz, um, would take, you know, it's a 10 hour, 12 hour ride or something each way. Um, and then, but they, they managed to convince a pilot who's got a, you know, a six seat Cessna something. And, uh, he comes there and, and after two attempts, it's, it's socked in. Like typically you'd expect a city high in the Andes by clouds and there's no way he can land. He can't, you know, there's there, but he does another loop. And on the third try, there's a break in the clouds. So he lands. So now imagine this, nobody's ever traveled in and out of this airport, at least that we know of, but yet the med, the medevac <laughs> company managed to convince us that this thing. So, so, so when the, the, the pilot lands, I, I don't know, really, all this is happening kind of behind the scenes. I find out later, but they, uh, all of a sudden at this hospital, the, the Daniel Bracamenti, I'll never forget this, of course, the, the little hospital I was at, which, by the way, I had to pay for everything. You know, if I wanted an x-ray, before they gave me the x-ray, I got to give them the cash. If I need some painkillers. Pain wow. and, and by the way, they did come to me and says, you know, yes, it is broken. I'm like, oh, I know that, you know. In, yeah, in, in, I can in, feel it. In, 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 in three places. <laughs> And they said, well, we're going to get you some pain. So, you know, they asked for the money. It's, you know, whatever it is, the Bolivianos, I guess we call them. And I give them the cash and they go to the pharmacy and they come back with the strongest stuff they got, which is um, something equivalent to, and by the way, the Medbeck company's translating this on the phone. You know, I'm like, what are they giving me? And he says, oh, that's, that's kind of like a ibuprofen. And I think, great. Here I am in one of the largest cocaine producing countries in the world. Yeah, I was going to think. And all they can give me for a broken leg. So I get to the airport and the gate's locked. There's nobody there. There's not a car, not a plane, nothing. Because this airport's never been open. And we sit there in this quote unquote ambulance with these two guys, uniformed guys. And after about. 40 minutes, there's a guy on a bicycle on the other side of the fence riding towards us, with, and he's dangling a key. Now, this one guy is the <laughs> airport security, the air traffic controller, the ticket agent, the customs agent, the uh, immigration person. The multi-talented and, guy, <laughs> multi-talented guy. So three flights and 24 hours later, I'm, I'm in Newport Beach um, back home, and uh, they put they, 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 they put my leg back together, and, yeah, and I did get back there, and my motorcycle stayed there the whole time, and um, I continued the journey. So, 
Oh, wow. How long was the delay between so I was healing before you got back on the bike? It was about and, seven and months because I also had to time it. You know, first of all, it t- takes some time to recuperate, get the strength back, and sure, and, sure. Re- and rehab. But you also now uh, I, had, I had to wait some time because you don't want to go back there in the um, the rainy season. Uh, right. I said, "Hold on, another muddy road." Thank you. Um, what yeah, a smart guy. That's right. There you go. I mean, it just, you know, thinking about all your, your travels in the book, I mean, you, there's just so much for, for me personally to draw from it. I mean, it just, it makes me realize um, I got to get out there more. <laughs> and it's not so boring and, you uh, and, yeah, and add to my list. But, you know, what I've listened to you in these different, between the, the gorillas and the people that help you, I read about in Bolivia. I mean, it is something about the nature that you put out there for people and, and that you allow them and they want to help you. I mean... And that's something that you had, that kind of interconnection that we all can work on definitely in these these new times we're in. Because you must, a lot of people would not have handled it the way you, you did, and, but you also had that help that you drew those people to you, I feel like. I mean, mm. I saw the photos of the people hanging over you with the umbrellas <laughs> when your, your leg was hurt. Yeah. But, I mean, it's like, how? That's amazing. You must, you, you felt the love, for lack of a better phrase right now, word now. I mean, that's the connection you make with people. So your curiosity leads to connection and and the love that these people showered on you to take care of you. It's just unforgettable, more than the place itself. That experience alone is what I'm sure you took home with you. Yeah, you you know, you... You've traveled, Todd. You know, you talk about your trip to Germany. And, Not and, as much as you. Sure, but but, <laughs> but, but but I say this to anybody here listening, um, that that those things that we go to do, to, to, we know a lot of people say they've got on, uh, a place on their bucket list, right? You know, so you want to see the Tour de Eiffel, you know, the Eiffel Tower, or you want to go to the Louvre, or you want to see London Bridge, whatever. You know, go to the museum. You would like this architecture, this, but... It, but it, Years later, when you think back of your trips, you might not really remember that building or that piece of no, art on the wall, no. but you'll remember that little lady that served you the espresso on the mm-hmm. corner. Yep. Yep. And yep. it's the people. Absolutely. It's the people that you remember. And and you're you're right. Curiosity and connection, Todd, is the is the is the thing that drives me. And and it also comes back to what I said earlier about being open, because a lot of people have a bit of a fear. Um mm-hmm. and 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 to be afraid to whatever you're wherever you draw on your fear and I, I think it, it takes a little bit of um, practice to be more open um, yeah. and 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 as I say ask those questions not be willing to ask those questions ask those questions of yourself and ask questions of others there's something too about you know being alone out of your element you're automatically vulnerable and it's sort of a courageous you know, a courageous thing yeah. to put yourself in that position. I think it's also an attractive quality, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I think, I think people recognize that and appreciate it. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, vulnerability absolutely. is a good, Tony, that's a good, vulnerability, a good word. And, and yeah, you, you're right. And you have to be willing to be vulnerable and, you know, and you can take exactly. these lessons, not just for traveling to Greece or into Bolivia, but, but even just being, you know, especially now with so much of us not really going anywhere, be willing to be, well, not, I mean, not being stupid with the virus, but being vulnerable of, of, of your, you know, your emotional self. Yeah. The more open you are, the more vulnerable and the more curious you are, the more you're going to, you know, take in, more you're going to experience. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, at the end of the day, you know, when, when you're in your late years, 
what do you have? You may, you know, do you have a big bank account or do you have a big account of experiences? And I think that uh, that's, to me, what life is about and yeah. particularly about Amen. other people. Yeah. Will you do it again, Alan? I, I would do it. I definitely would. I still do it. I, I My motorcycle today is in a garage in Athens, Greece. Speaking of Greece, Todd. And, oh, my and, God. And I, um, I will be going back there when we can um, to get back on that bike. And, you know, I've got dreams of Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, and Mongolia. Jesus. A lot of stands. But I, I wanted to say wow. one thing before you wind it out. What, sure. what you were saying, um, and when you said, you know, you're you were impressed, and um, also, you 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 couldn't do this, but you could do something else. I think my thing that I try and why I speak um, is is to inspire people, not to necessarily hop on a motorcycle and travel the world, but to do whatever it is that they have not been willing or vulnerable or open yeah. to do. Yeah. And so you can imagine when when a or afraid when a meeting learn. planner is looking at hiring a speaker and they you're or, or corporate like I've spoke at Google, Apple, I've spoke at big companies, hedge funds. And sometimes the question might come up, well wait a minute, are you here to to tell our employees to quit their jobs, hop on a motorcycle and travel the world? And I said, "No, no, that's not it. I'm there to inspire your employees to think outside of that proverbial box to think about how they can approach whatever it is that they do a little bit differently with a bit of curiosity, a bit of openness and the willing to be, uh, to connect. So, yeah. Hmm. Amen. Yeah. Very cool. you enjoyed this episode of the gray matters podcast please rate and review and be sure to tell your friends too for more information about this podcast go to thegraymatters.org and please subscribe to the gray matters wherever you get your podcasts i'd like to thank my guest alan carl my co-host tony hoyland and a special thanks to you the listener i'm todd harrington until next time